Well, we are taking a break from Matthew. We're going to come back to that. We kind of do this regularly. Our regular diet at this church for looking at the scriptures is uh, marching through a book. So we've been in Matthew for a couple years, and we will finish up, Lord willing, by February. Uh, But we sometimes take breaks from that just to remind ourselves of key truths, key topics that uh, we don't necessarily get to all the time. Uh, or topics that we think are important um, to discuss. And so what we are doing over the next few weeks is we're going to talk about church offices. Church offices. Now, I'm not talking about my office down the hall. That's not what I'm talking about. We are talking about something, uh, we are talking about how the church is structured and how it's organized. Uh, If you want a good definition of what we mean by a church office, um, uh, theologian Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology has a really good definition. He says this, a church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. I put that in your bulletin there because I think it's really good. A church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. So the question then is, well, who are the officers? Uh, who, who, who has responsibility to do what? And we can actually see that in the New Testament. In fact, we can see it in the very first verse of one of Paul's epistles in Philippians 1.1. We went through Philippians a couple years ago, about three years ago. And uh, what's interesting is, is how Paul addresses the letter. He's talking to a local church. He's talking to the church at Philippi. And he says this in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so there very quickly you see, oh, okay, see, we can see a couple church offices. We see overseers, which we will argue and discuss later is equivalent to elders. And uh, we've got deacons or deacons and deaconesses as a class together. But I'm going to argue there's three offices in verse 1. And in fact, the foundational office there is at the very beginning to all the saints. To all the saints. What does saint mean? Saint means holy one. One who has been requisitioned by God for his own purposes. A holy one. A saint. The members of the church. And so really when we look at Philippians 1.1, we really have three offices. We have the saints who are at the church. And then we have, as of course they're saints as well, but they have a different role. Overseers, elders, and deacons. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Uh, This week and next, we're going to talk about the fundamental office, church member, the saints. And then uh, a couple weeks after that, we're going to talk about overseers. We're talking about elders. We're talking about pastors. And then a couple weeks after that, we're going to talk about deacons and deaconesses and uh, their role in the church. Because those are the three offices that Jesus has designed for the local church. Now, as we set that up, you might be at this point thinking, Uh, Why do we care about this? Why do we care about talking about offices? It kind of seems just kind of technical and not that interesting. Well, let's think about it like this. Um, Have you ever been in a job? You ever been in a job or in maybe you volunteered for an organization where roles were not clearly defined? How does that go? When you don't know, well, what's my role? What's that person's role? Maybe in a job or in a volunteer organization, it doesn't go well, does it? There's confusion, there's mayhem. And if we talk about the local church, the local church is an organization. It is an institution designed by Jesus Christ. And Jesus has designed it as head of the church 
in such a way and with such a structure to operate together, to work together for what? Well, we talked about it in the songs this morning. We talk about it a lot as uh, spreading the gospel, the, the, the great commission, making disciples. That's Jesus' mission, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But Jesus has not only designed the great commission of the church, he's designed the church to function together in a particular way. And so if the local church, if there's confusion on roles, if it's not operating in a healthy way, what happens? Christ is dishonored and the great commission is hampered. And so that is what we want to avoid. At another level, we could think about it like this, just in our particular life as a local church. Uh, we come, uh, we're coming up in January. January is our annual meeting. At January in our annual meeting, we reaffirm and reappoint elders and deacons. And what we do on a regular basis, in fact, what we just did this morning with Bruce, is we affirm members. And so as we do that in our life, we want to remind ourselves, what, what's each individual's role? What's the member's role? What's the elder's role? What's the deacon or deaconess's role? What does that look like? And so that's what we think as elders, we want to walk through those offices with you to clarify roles so that what? We can work together and we can honor Christ together as a local church. Now, I meant to bring them up with me. If you want more under, uh, resources and just to think a little bit more th about this, what I'm going to talk about today and the next couple weeks, there's a couple helpful books, and I, like I said, I meant to bring them up, but they're down front in the pew. Uh, one is Understanding the Congregation's Authority by Jonathan Lehman. I would recommend that to you, and I do have a few copies. If you are interested, you can see me after. And another uh, book, Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. Again, another good book. If you're interested in that, you can come and see me after. But what we want to talk about this morning as we enter this series is we want to talk about the foundational office of the church, and that is the office of church membership. And so the big idea for this morning is this. Church members constitute, they make up, the local church temple and have the authority and responsibility of priest kings. That is my claim this morning, that church members constitute the local church temple, and they have the authority and responsibility of priest kings. And so the way we're going to look at this this morning is we're going to look at it in two ways, very much related, but sort of separate. First thing we're going to look at is I'm going to make the claim to you in the argument from Scripture that church members inherit the office of priest king. Church members inherit the office of priest king, which is an office that is throughout all of the Scriptures. So we're going to kind of set the theological framework. We're going to look from really Genesis, in a sense, to Revelation, and we're going to say this has always been the case. But then what we're going to talk about in the second part is we're going to talk about, okay, you have this office, but you also have the authority. You not only have the office in name, but you have the authority to back it up. And we're going to relate all of that to what God is doing in the gospel. So first, let's look at this idea. Church members inherit the office of priest-king. Now you're like, what in the world are you talking about? That seems really exalted language to talk about in relation to the saints or to talk about it in relation to believers in general. But actually, we should be fairly familiar with this kind of language because we use it like this, the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Now, when we say that, we just kind of throw it out there, but maybe we don't necessarily think about what that means. You are claiming, when you say and you believe the priesthood of all believers, you are claiming that every believer has an office, a high office, that was 
given only to a select few, or even if you were to expand it to Israel, to a select nation in the Old Testament. So what does that really mean to claim the priesthood of all believers? Well, that's what I want to do for you is I want to actually sketch in broad fashion, in broad fashion from Genesis to Revelation, that idea, because that is not just an idea in the New Testament. It's actually an idea in the Old Testament, and it it forms the basis of what we mean when we talk about the office of church member. We can say it like this. As we look through Scripture, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are gathering a distinct, definable, and visible people for his glory. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing from Genesis to Revelation? The triune God is gathering a distinct, definable, and visible people for his own glory. And what you see centered around that idea is the ideas of kingdom, temple, and priesthood. They go together. They go together. And they've gone together from the very beginning. Go to Genesis 1. Go to Genesis 1. We find ourselves often coming back to Genesis 1 through 3. Whenever we're tracing a theme through Scripture, uh, well, where's it going to start? It's more often than not going to start in Genesis 1 through 3, and that's what we're talking about today, has no exception. The fundamental marching orders for humanity, the fundamental covenant that God makes with humanity is spelled out in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see this in Genesis 1:26, talking about God's creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all the, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is mankind's fundamental role, man and woman? What are they supposed to do? They are to be steward rulers under the ultimate ruler, God himself, and they are to be representatives of his reign. Uh, That was the original plan in Genesis 1. Before sin entered the world, they are to be rulers, to exercise dominion. Not an autonomous dominion, but one under God. And you can even see it here. It's not just Adam and Eve, but they're to multiply image bearers to do what? To essentially extend the boundaries of the garden. Where are they at? They're in the Garden of Eden, this place really that's a forerunner of the temple that we find out later where God's presence dwells. And yes, there's the Garden of Eden, but, and everything God has created is good, but Adam and Eve haven't exercised dominion over the rest of the creation. They haven't pushed the borders back of the garden to the rest of the world. That's what they're to do as rulers, steward rulers, under God. But they are not merely rulers. Look at Genesis 2.15. Skipping over, we find out that God actually created Adam first and gave him a particular role. And we see this in Genesis 2.15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and guard it. That's the idea there. God is forming a man, forms Adam first, then Eve to be a helpmate, But he puts both man and woman in the garden. What are they supposed to do? Well, here it's described as you're supposed to work it and guard it. And those two words, work and guard, when they're used in conjunction together like that, it only happens elsewhere in the Bible or generally happens elsewhere in the Bible in connection with priests. That's what priests do. They work, they serve, 
and they guard. How do they guard? They declare the difference between the holy, what belongs to God, and the unholy, what is common. They declare the difference between what is clean and what is unclean. So even Adam and Eve, in a good world, before sin entered the world, they're to guard. Guard from what? Well, things like lying snakes that show up in Genesis 3. But what you need to see from this, my point in going here is, Whose humanity is fundamentally supposed to be? Rulers, steward rulers under God, advancing his kingdom, pushing back the borders of the garden, creating culture, if you will. And what? Guarding, being priests, being mediators between God and the rest of his creation. Now, even with sin entering the world, really when Adam and Eve fell, it's like a coup attempt. Instead of being steward rulers, they want to become their own autonomous rulers. That's the issue at play there. And so, uh, but even with the fall, God doesn't abandon his program, his fundamental design that a humanity would be a rulers under him to display his glory in the world. He doesn't abandon that program. And we could talk about how that gets advanced through the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but really, those patriarchs form the foundation of the next stop I want to take you, and that is Israel, what we call the Old Covenant Assembly. You see, God, through his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, said, I am going to still create a people. I'm going to create a people for myself that are going to represent me to the world. And that's exactly what God does. Uh, uh, through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have the nation of Israel built and it is effectively founded as a nation in connection with the Exodus. Because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he rescues this people out from slavery in Egypt, out from oppression in Egypt, and he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And so let's pick it up in Exodus 19. For all these plagues, after being released from slavery, what is God going to do with this people? What is their foundation? What is their constitution as a nation? And we find this in Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Find this, Moses goes up to God, and so Moses is talking with God, and God says this, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is God doing? He has rescued this people. He's brought them out from slavery. And then what is he doing? He's making them a kingdom of priests. Just like at the beginning. The same program, the same plan... Now, what he's doing with Israel is going to be a microcosm to what he's going to do for all of humanity, because remember at the beginning, the design is for all of humanity, but here he's doing it with a particular people to reach what? The world. As a priestly people, as a kingdom people, they're to reach the world. They're to be mediators between the one true God and the rest of the world. That's why God puts his temple, his tabernacle, in the midst of this people to say, here's my presence, here's my kingdom. If you want to come know me, you come to this people, you come to this land, you come to this temple. You come to this priestly people who are mediating between the rest of, between the one true God and the rest of the world. And Israel is to be a distinct and definable people. How is it distinct and definable? 
through its covenant signs. You think of the promise to Abraham and those uh, promises to Isaac and Jacob. They were to be marked, the males were to be marked by circumcision, saying, we are a people that are belong to God. But they are also marked off, as we find out in Exodus, in Exodus 31, 12 through 13, there are people marked off by Sabbath. We keep the Sabbath. We set aside that seventh day for rest. Why? Because it shows that we are a people that belong to the creator God who rested on the seventh day. We are marked off. We are distinct. We are definable from the rest of the people. Such that even when Israel celebrates its rescue, right? Israel celebrates its rescue from slavery in Egypt. It's kind of fundamental moment of redemption, uh, bringing it and making it a people, constituting as a nation, They celebrate a meal. They call it Passover. And even in Passover, they celebrate that meal as a distinct and definable people. Go back to Exodus 12, just to show you this briefly, to show you that God is gathering this people, but he's a distinct and definable people for his glory. Look at Exodus 12. 12, 43 through 49. So prior to this, God is saying through Moses, hey, here's the Passover. uh, God is killing the firstborn unless you have blood over your door. And so it institutes this feast, this fundamental rescue by which God is rescuing his people. And then Moses gives stipulations. Well, here's how you celebrate it in an ongoing way. Because this is a big deal. This is the founding of the nation. So if you're going to celebrate this in an ongoing way, but you got to do it right as a distinct and definable people. So look at Exodus 12, 43. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and eat, keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. And what's the point? God's saying, if you want to celebrate the fundamental meal by which you become a people, by which you become a nation, you are a distinct, definable, holy kingdom of priests. And so anyone outside of that can't celebrate. You need to take on yourself the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he is saying. There to be a distinct, definable, visible kingdom of priests elsewhere, uh, in other ways too. What you find out later as you walk through the first five books of the Bible is in Deuteronomy. It talks about how, well, what if this person is, what if this person is, um, uh, 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 falls into idolatry, falls into sin, and you hear about it. You are to go after that person. You are to confront them, and you are to, if they can t- persist in their disobedience, cut them off from the people. You've heard that phrase, what we're reading through the Old Testament. They shall be cut off from their people. Part of the people that God is gathering to himself is a distinct, definable, invisible people. So what have we seen? We've seen in Eden, God has a kingdom of priests that he's choosing. We see, again, he doesn't abandon that program. He does it with Israel, the old covenant assembly. And then as we come to our own time and situation, we come to the church. What is the church? Fundamentally, the word church is in Greek, it's ekklesia, and it means assembly. Assembly. So we have an old covenant assembly centered around an old covenant, and we have a new covenant assembly centered around the new covenant. Now, we might throw around those terms, new covenant, new covenant assembly. What are you talking about? 
Well, just like God made an agreement because of his relationship with Israel, he makes a new covenant, first and foremost with Israel, but then extended to the Gentiles. The foundation for the new covenant is actually in the Old Testament. So go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the go-to text for the new covenant. You've heard me go here many times, because if we're going to talk about ourselves as a new covenant people, what does that actually mean? Well, God defines what it means in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And this is fast forward many years after the Exodus. Israel has been a disobedient. They're going to go into exile. They're going to be scattered. But God says it's not all over because just like there was an old covenant that I formed you as a people, there's going to be a new covenant, which I'm going to reform you as a people. And we find central core of that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's made with Israel and Judah, first and foremost. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The idea here is, is that God is going to... The problem with Israel is that you had people, a part of Israel, that didn't know God. They didn't know God at all. They were part of the covenant community. They didn't know God. But the new covenant's not going to be like that. Every single individual who's part of the new covenant is going to know God and have their sins forgiven. Not only that, they're going to have the law of God, the commands of God, the desires of God written on their hearts so that they can obey. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, don't turn there, but it describes it this way, that God's going to give his spirit to live inside of people such that they can obey God's law as members of the new covenant. It's promised. The new covenant is promised in the Old Testament. Where does it begin? It begins with the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes. Matthew 16, he says, I'm going to build my assembly. What he's referring to there is he's saying, I'm going to build the new covenant assembly. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. How did he institute it? He instituted it in connection with his death, resurrection, and ascension. Go to Luke 22. What's amazing is, like we saw in the Old Testament, the new covenant is first and foremost for Israel, but it gets extended. There's hints of this in the Old Testament, but it gets extended to all who will place their, repent and place their faith in Jesus and partake in the benefits of his atonement, his death, and his resurrection. And in light of that, listen to what Jesus has to say on the, right before he goes to his crucifixion. Luke 22, Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, they're eating the Passover, the first celebration of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. But in connection with this, Jesus has this Passover meal with his disciples in connection with a new exodus, a second exodus, a new rescue of a new people. 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And as we find out in the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament letters, the one who repents and places his faith from Jews or Gentile is bound to Jesus Christ and is brought into a people. What kind of a people? We find out at the very end, the very last book of Revelation. See, Genesis to Revelation. Revelation 5. Right before Jesus is about to march on the world and take back the earth. He's opening this scroll, which is kind of like a picture of the title deed to the earth. And there's this celebration in connection with Jesus doing this as he's about to form the kingdom of God in fullness. It says this in Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, talking about Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is Jesus doing? He's doing the exact same thing that God planned from the very beginning, gathering a people, but not just any people, a people who is going to have a stewardship rule together with him, and that people that is a priestly people, that is going to be a people who mediates the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. So every saint, everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and is baptized, is brought into this people and is given an office, given a job, a fundamental, foundational job to do what? To mediate God's rule and to be a priestly people. What do priests do again? They declare the difference between the common and the holy, between the clean and the unclean. And more than that, more than just the people being priests, and what we, Andre read this morning, we find out that actually there are priests and they're also the temple itself. Remember what church means? It means assembly. And in the picture of the New Testament, the local church is the temple. You want to go to where God's presence dwells on earth? You go to the local church because it's built up of individual stones that when they assemble, that's where God's presence dwells. Because why? Each individual stone has the spirit of God dwelling in them. And then when they come together, the spirit of God dwells amongst the people in a particular way. You can see this in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Paul reflects on this many times in his letters. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is another name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God, talking about believers, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see it? The new covenant people are individual stones that when assembled become a temple, a local temple, and they are to be a holy temple, and they are to be a priesthood, declaring the difference between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean. Or you can even think of the saint language in the New Testament. We're not talking about some special people that are really, really holy. We're talking about all believers because all believers are called holy ones, those who are requisitioned for God's service. And so when we think about the church, yes, we can think about the universal church, the new covenant assembly, but that assembly, that grand assembly hasn't come, about to, hasn't come together yet. It won't until Jesus comes back. So where do we see the church? Where do we see God's presence now? We see it, as Jesus talks about in Revelation 2 through 3, in the lampstand, the temple lampstand of a local church. Where do saints go to work? Where do they punch a clock and get busy? The local church. The local church. You see, members, church members, have the fundamental foundational office in the New Testament because they make up the temple. They make up the priesthood. And that's not just an empty title. Priests have a job. Now, we've kind of established or made an argument that, okay, we can kind of see it from Genesis to Revelation. God is forming a people, a priestly and kingly people. You've connected that with membership. But have you ever been at a job where you have an office, you have a title, but you actually don't have the authority backing you up to do it? You ever been in a job like that where it's like, oh, I'm supposed to do this, but I, get no, I, I got no backing from my boss or I get no backing uh, to do the role I'm supposed to do. I don't have the tools to do it. I don't have the authority to do it. Well, unlike a job like that, Jesus gives the backing, the authority behind his kingly and priestly people to do their work, which brings us to our second point. Church members are granted a priestly authority. Church members are granted a priestly authority. Now, the advantage in this point is that a lot of it is built into Matthew, and we've been spending a lot of time in Matthew. So to understand how Jesus gives authority to his local church, go start first in Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, a big turning point in the gospel of Matthew. We looked at this several months ago. Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we have this. Now, Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means stone. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, we look at that text, and it's like, whoa, there's a lot going on there. Let's boil it down. And it's like, what does this have to do with church membership? I'll show you. First, what is the key issue here? That Peter is a confessor that Jesus is the king. That's what the Christ means. It's not just Jesus' last name. That's actually not what it is. It's a title. It says the Christ is the one who's going to rule over Israel and all the nations of the world. He's the king of the world. And Peter confesses, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're God the son incarnate. He confesses that. And then what does Jesus say? I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, a stone. And by extension, we find out the rest of the apostles of of this structure I'm building. What structure is Jesus building? He's building a temple. We already found that out in the rest of the New Testament. He's building a temple, and he's going to build it on people, confessors like Peter. And here what we see is Peter gets a special job uh, along with the rest of the apostles to bind and to loose, which uh, which is equivalent to this idea of the keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has the keys of the kingdom to begin with, and we see Jesus wielding the keys in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus says, if you're my disciple, if you're a kingdom citizen, if you've replanted and placed your faith in me, here's what it looks like to live in Matthew 5 through 7. And if you don't live this way, it shows you don't really belong to me, and you're not going to enter the kingdom. But if you do walk this way because of your connection with me, you will enter the kingdom. That's Jesus wielding the keys He's binding, he's loosing, he's saying, it's binding on you to live in this way. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 through 7. And then what does he do? He hands that authority off to Peter and the apostles. And he says, now you, as the foundation of my church, have the authority to bind and to loose. You're like, again, what does this have to do about church membership? Because that's Peter and the apostles. That has nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. Because... When you go over to Matthew 18, the same language is used and the same authority is described or a similar authority. And this time, it's not given to Peter and the apostles. It is given to the local church. Look at Matthew 18, 15. In Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them, what does it look like to live in community? What does it look like to live together as disciples? And as part of that, he says what he says in Matthew 18, 15 and t- through 20. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's the idea that in the community, you are to observe one another's discipleship. And if someone is not walking in the way that Jesus has prescribed, you go to them. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered into my name, there I am among them. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, the authority to tell a fellow disciple hey, it's binding on you to live in this way. If you claim to follow Jesus, it's binding on you to live this way. That authority is jointly shared by the local church. Which makes sense because if the members of the church are a priesthood and they're to declare what is clean versus unclean, what is holy versus unholy, then Jesus had better give them the authority to do that, and he does. He gives them the keys of the kingdom of heaven to say, yes, by all that we can see, the church corporately, just as we did this morning with Bruce, we are corporately saying, yes, by all that we can see, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. We affirm you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, if, if a disciple in a local church is saying, well, I can live however I want, it doesn't really matter, blah, 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 blah then the church has the authority to go to that and say, you are claiming to be a disciple of Jesus, but you're not walking the way he claimed that you ought to walk. We remove our affirmation from you. That is what it means to be the priesthood of all believers. That is what it means to declare the holy from the unholy. Same thing happens in 1 Corinthians 5. This isn't an isolated incident in Matthew. 1 Corinthians 5 the same authority. It's not individually. It's not like I as an individual Christian can walk up to another individual Christian and say, I don't see you walking like Jesus walked. Uh, you're, you're out of here. I can't do that. Because it's an authority given to the church jointly as they gather, as they assemble. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is, I'll summarize the first half. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, a local church, and he's saying, I've heard about this guy who's there who's being sexually immoral, and you need to throw him out of the church. Now, notice what Paul does. He's an apostle, but he doesn't just say, all right, that guy's out. He says, you, as the local church, need to throw him out. When you are assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus, you need to act. Notice, when you are together, when you're gathered, you have this authority given to you by Jesus, and you need to act to make a distinguish between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean. And Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 5 in this way, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy. It's not just sexual, sexual immorality or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, a so-called brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you, the local church of Corinth, are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And there you see it again. The local church has the responsibility of priest kings 
and has the authority backing it up, backed by the authority of heaven. And again, it's authority given not to individual Christians. I can't just walk up to say, say to someone, you're out of here. I can't do that as an elder. I can't walk up to any member in this church as an elder and say, you're out of here. I can't do it. I don't have that authority. But who does? The local church jointly has that authority when it gathers. The collective assembly knows who's inside and who's outside. They have been publicly installed into office, just like we publicly installed Bruce into office of member this morning. They know who's inside, they know who's outside, and they are to be a priestly and kingly people. Membership is the fundamental office of a local church. Now, what do we do with all of this? Like, whoa, that's a lot to take in and to try to digest and to think about. Well, let's, let's break it down. If you're a member of Faith Bible Church, you are a stone that constitutes part of the local temple of this church. You are part of what makes us up. Faith Bible Church is not this building. If this building ceased to exist, Faith Bible Church would still exist because it exists when the people, its members, assemble. Speaking to you as a member, an individual member, you possess the fundamental office of the local church jointly with the other members of Faith Bible Church. You are a priest king, a stewardship ruler, called to expand the interests of the king through evangelism and discipleship and to judge between the holy and the unholy. Sometimes people say, well, you're not supposed to judge as a Christian. Yes, you are. You're not supposed to have the kind of judgment that the Pharisees had in which they are individually condemning and looking down upon someone, but that's not the judgment we're talking about. The judgment we're talking about is backed by the authority of Jesus to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, who are his and who are not. Soak that in. That if you're a member of Faith Bible Church, you have that office. Not just you individually, together with your brothers and sisters, you have that office. Let that soak in. It should be the context. Knowing that you have that office should be the context for doing the seemingly mundane things that a member does. What do we do as members? Fundamentally, we gather. We come together on Sunday. The temple assembles. God's presence is among us. We worship our king. It feels really mundane, doesn't it? Just to show up at church. But it is significant because it is part of exercising the office. What about giving? We have offering boxes at the front and the back. And it's like, okay, the church just wants my money. No. Giving is an aspect of worship. Worship to our king, saying that all I have belongs to King Jesus, and I want to see his interests advanced in the world through this local church. feels mundane, but it is part of exercising the office of priests. What about serving? Uh, you know, maybe singing uh, up on front, or maybe helping in the nursery, or maybe just showing up to a Bible study and praying with a fellow brother. Maybe, uh, maybe it's nothing formal. Maybe it's just, I'm going to make someone a meal, and I'm going to go over to their house. I'm going to encourage them. That's serving in the local church. It feels really mundane, really simple. Well, what are you doing? You're exercising the office that Jesus has called you to fill. Or what about praying? 
When we pray here on a Sunday morning, or maybe we have our prayer groups in the evening, or we pray together with our discipleship group, our Bible study, and we're just praying together, what are you doing? It feels really mundane, it feels awkward, it feels hard, but what are you doing? You're executing your office, praying on behalf of not just you, but your fellow brothers and sisters on behalf of the local church, because you know that unless God acts, and he acts through the means of prayer, the church won't be built up. Or what about member meetings? We're going to have a member meeting next week. We show up and we have a meal, which is a lot of fun. And then what? We talk, uh, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about the budget. We talk about, well, this thing is happening, that thing's happening. And sometimes it feels boring. And sometimes it feels mundane. What's going to help you? Showing up to those meetings is really important because when we gather, we are executing the office of the local church. Let's boil it down. We need all the members who have been publicly installed to do the job that Jesus has given. We need all the members. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the church needs every member to do the job that Jesus has given to that member. Okay, that's for members of Faith Bible Church. If you're not a member of Faith Bible Church, maybe you're just visiting with us this morning. Maybe you're a member of another church back home or wherever you've come from this morning, you're just visiting and passing through. We get that a lot. If you're a member from another church back home, this is still for you. Consider the job that Jesus has given to you, the responsibility in relation to your home church and execute your office, do your job. Or maybe you're a regular attender here and a Christian. Here's the good news. We are so glad you are here. Jesus has a job for you in this church and we want you to take it. We would love for you to join with us and become part of this church and be installed publicly in office. So you can't just show up and take a job, can you? Think about my job as pastor. A couple years ago, uh, you know, I said, hey, I might be interested in the job posting you have, but I couldn't just show up on a Sunday morning and start saying, yeah, I'm the pastor of Faith Bible Church, could I? That'd be bad. I, you shouldn't have hired me if I started doing that, right? It's like, whoa, get that guy out of here the same way with membership. You can't just self-select because the rest of the body need to recognize you and install you in the job because the authority is held jointly, not independently. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. And you're like, what in the world is all this? What did I get myself into coming this morning? Let me make it simple for you. Back up, outside the local church, outside of our, think of, outside of our nation, think of the world, think of the universe. Let's put things in cosmic perspective. There are two kingdoms in this universe, and there are two ways to live. There is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, where you live independent. You may think you're your own ruler. I rule my own life. I do what I want to do. Uh, no one's ruling over me. Well, yes, there is. His name is Satan. That's what Jesus says. And so you may be thinking you're living your own life. You may think you're living for yourself, but ultimately you're living for the evil one. What about the other kingdom? The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of his beloved son. That's how Paul describes it in Colossians 1.13. And the good news is that you can transfer. You can transfer from one kingdom to another. You can transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. How do you do it? 
by first confessing, yeah, I wanted to live for myself. I wanted to rule my own life, but I can't. I know that's an offense to God. That's, that's rebellion against the true ruler of the universe. You confess that. You repent. You turn your allegiance from sin and self. And you also say, I can't fix my life. I can't, I can't fix my sin. I'm a, I, I've offended a holy and just God, and I deserve his wrath. I deserve his punishment as a rebel against his reign. And then you trust. You entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, who has died in place of his people, lived the righteous life that you and I couldn't live, such that those who repent and place their faith in Jesus the resurrected Savior, the one mediator at the right hand of God between the living, or between God and man, you entrust yourself fully to him. He will count you as righteous, transferring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he will change you. He will radically change your life because you're living under the rule of King Jesus. And he brings you into a people through baptism, into the local church, installed into an office. Isn't it amazing that we start as rebels against God's reign, and then he transforms us to love Christ, to love his rule, and then to be put to work for his interests among his people in his kingdom. Church members constitute the local church temple and have the authority and responsibility of priest kings through that rescue that Jesus has brought. Many might be saying, well, what do they do? What do we do? What's the job? You said we have a job, and when you said we have authority, what do you do? That is next week, and we'll talk about that idea next week. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the true and rightful king. Lord, we start as rebels we start by living for ourselves, trying to live independently like Adam and Eve. But you have sent your son, God the Son. You became man. You lived the righteous life that you and we could not live. You died on a cross for your people, bearing the wrath of God in place of your people, such that any who repent and believe may access and enter that kingdom. And you give us a job. Lord, help us as members of Faith Bible Church, to, to do that job well and to honor you and to advance the gospel through it. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. In Christ's name, amen.